Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and today we're going to talk about the EU Interior Minister's decision to push through quotas on the refugee crisis through a majority vote against the wishes of several EU countries in order to distribute 120,000 refugees from Syria and other crisis zones. And the question we're going to ask is whether these enforced refugee quotas mark the end of Europe by consent. For this discussion, I'm joined by three experts from ECFR. Sitting with me here in London is Vesela Cherneva, who is Programme Director of ECFR, uh, Head of our Office in Sofia and a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR as well. Speaking down the line from Berlin is Josef Janning, who is a Senior Policy Fellow and the Co-Director of our Office in Berlin. And also uh, down the line is Susie Dennison, who is another Senior Policy Fellow who is the co-director of our programme on European power. And she has been coordinating a lot of the work we've been doing on the crisis. So maybe, Susie, I could turn to you first to give us a sense of, of what happened uh, at the meeting of interior ministers and what that means for the European project. Is it right for people to, to see this as the biggest crisis the European Union has had to do, do, uh, deal with since its foundation? Does it fundamentally change the nature of the European project? So in terms of what happened at the interior ministers' meeting um, on Tuesday, there was agreement by majority to the relocation of an extra 120,000 people, um, which uh, people who are already in European states um, on, on, on the external borders um, uh, and are seeking refugee status. So this um, agreement brought the commitment um, uh, up to 160,000 people that um, the EU is planning to relocate through this scheme uh, because there was already the 40,000 um, commitment from the last um, bruising discussions on this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think there are two key points um, about this agreement. The first is the scale um, uh, that we are still um, with this with agreement on quotas as, um, as difficult as it's been to get here. We're still only dealing with um, uh, a relatively small proportion of the problem. Um, just to say that um, the, the main six receiving countries um, where uh, asylum applications are being lodged in the EU believe um, that they'll have received 1.3 million um, in 2015 by the end of the year. Um, so, uh, so these numbers remain relatively small. Um, and I think the second key point about this decision is the how. This was obviously a very bitter battle, um, and uh, and it was seen by Central and Eastern states in particular as as, as being in, imposed by Germany. Um, uh, I wasn't in the council meeting, obviously, but um, my understanding is that the deal was done um, by. Um, Poland effectively being peeled off from the group of blocking states um, by a joint effort from Germany and France, um, uh, which, uh, which, which meant that the, the, the blocking minority um, broke down. And I think it's fairly clear that this was not the way that leaders went into the meeting wanting to do the deal. This wasn't um, the agreement by consensus. And I think it's left all sides um, feeling fairly bruised. 
as to what that means um, for European decision-making going forward and uh, what this means for Europe, um, there, th this clearly has raised a sensitivity around implementation of the quota deal itself, um, but it obviously also has much wider repercussions. Um, and I think uh, it, it sort of has moved um, us into a new era in terms of the way that um, decision-making is done and the role that Germany is playing within that. So, Josef, can you tell us a bit more about the evolution of German thinking about how uh, Europe should be made and how decisions should be taken? Because this does seem to be a bit of a, a stepping stone f in terms of the German approach as well. Uh, yes, it's very interesting, actually, to look at this. So, because it, when, when you look at the controversies over the past days, you realize that uh, actually when Chancellor Merkel made the move that uh, indicated this um, new approach of the government, um, declaring the willingness to take an unlimited number of Syrian refugees uh, in, um, this was not prepared. You know, this was not uh, uh, triggering uh, a, a, a range of policy measures which, which had been uh, prepared for. But rather, Germany found itself uh, in a situation of... Uh, of, of uh, a huge impact of that uh, announcement, uh, but uh, rather little preparation. So a lot of that had to be done after the fact. And I hear from Berlin actors that in the morning of the council meeting, they were determined to go for consensus. They wanted consensus, but at the same time, you could already hear uh, that uh, to them, uh, a, a solution in the direction of the commission proposals uh, was so essential that at the end of the day they would go for uh, majority, even though the German government uh, in the days before. So, so you, you see that this is always a, um, a, a double gain. There had been very active uh, to bring around essential member states. France was was on board early on. Um, uh, Spain got on board uh, after intensive uh, negotiations between the Chancellery and. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Rajoy's uh, uh, office and Rajoy himself. And Poland uh, was brought along uh, by a same uh, intensive process. But, you know, if it had been a policy, one would have expected uh, that Berlin would have sounded out uh, its most important allies on, on such a political dossier before the fact. You know? So now it had all go down after the fact. So, Josef, you... You're, you're speaking in, in the kind of nice language of diplomacy about intensive processes. Can you yeah. kind of maybe unpack that a bit more? What did it involve? What were, what were people being threatened with if they didn't support this, this measure? Well, it involves also a lot of political arm twisting. Uh, yeah. you know, the, uh, but what uh, was goes... the specific threat to Poland, for example? Were, well, they, were they kind of threatening to take away uh, cohesion funds? Was it, was it to do with Russia? I mean, how did you? How did they well, crush the Polish opposition? Uh, I think this was um, this was a factor in it. You you could hear uh, not Merkel, but people uh, in the second and third line speculating about uh, what the future of structural fund policy would be. You know, if there was no consensus reached. Uh, even the Minister of the Interior said something like this. Uh, Merkel consciously did not engage on this. So um, that was part of it. But I think the strongest argument that Merkel had uh, is to say to, to her Polish uh, colleague, do you want to put uh, uh, on the spot 
the enormous um, uh, substance we have built uh, in the German-Polish uh, uh, relationship over the past years. Do you want to risk Poland's now position in the political center of the European Union? And she said the same thing to Rajoy. Now, do you want to, to position yourself on the margins or do you want to be in the inner circle uh, shaping outcomes, not just on this issue, but on a number of other issues which are very essential to you? If you want this, you better not uh, leave now. now. And I think this is an argument that, that to some people sounds a bit abstract because it's not, it's not money and it's not you know, immediate uh, uh, pain, but... Uh, it runs counter to the overarching political ambition of these countries. So we'll go into a bit more depth on, on whether this is a one-off thing in Germany or how much it's part of a kind of um, bigger shift in terms of how Germany's dealing with lots of different issues. But before that, maybe we can go to you, Wessler. You come from uh, one of the neighbours of the countries that were opposed to it. Um, we haven't... Uh, spelt them out, but it was the Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia that voted against, whilst Finland abstained on this. What's the way that people are looking at this in, in Sofia and in these other countries? Is there a sense that if uh, countries' interests in the future of the European project don't align themselves completely with German domestic politics, that... Um, uh, they'll just have to cave on whatever the issue is? Or, I mean, how much anger is there in these countries? Obviously, uh, those countries who voted against um, thought that uh, they didn't care about Germany, at least not at this point. Uh, and I think the public attitudes, uh, not only in those countries, but also in others uh, who who were aligned uh, in the in the uh, quota policy um, is very um, critical um, and I'm I mean we can go into the motives behind it but uh, the fact is that the governments in the Czech Republic and in Hungary and in Slovakia really enjoy uh, public support uh, growth in their polling numbers um, and uh, in a way this is a test also for Germany, how much and to arm twisting she can do. Uh, and uh, the Polish example uh, to me was very telling that the Polish government decided really to do this a month before their elections. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous risk. Um, and we saw the reply of Mr. Kaczynski uh, to this which was basically saying that this is not the Europe they want to be part of. Wow. So, um, Susie, you've been looking uh, beyond those countries at, at how uh, other member states have been responding. In fact, you've been looking at all 28 member states and their response to the, to the crisis as part of the, the scorecard you've been running on, on Europe's refugee policy. How... Do you think this is going to reverberate in other places as, as well? Are there countries that weren't specifically voting against it or uh, visibly in the front line like Poland that have... Uh, well, how, how are the other countries taking the, the message of, of yesterday's summit? Well, 
the, the council meeting. Well, I mean, I just just to say to start with, I think that um, the the conclusions which came out of yesterday's summit, the day after um, this um, this battle, um, were quite telling of um, the, the sort of the disarray that this has this has left um, the um, the EU in, um, because it was quite clear um, that um, at the summit, which was more focused on um, the external dimension um, of the refugee crisis. Um, there was um, there was some fairly specific um, commitments around reinforcing Frontex operations in the Mediterranean, um, moving f- some funds, overseas funds, around um, to focus more on um, the origins of the problem. But the sort of the big questions um, uh, around um, how to engage with Turkey as a sort of a linchpin state in this picture. Um, uh, what to do in relation to Syria, which were already very divisive issues. Um, uh, let's be clear, um, across the EU, um, there was there was no um, there, there was no kind of uh, real sense of what the the, the, the commitments are going to mean. It, on Turkey, there was an undertaking to intensify dialogue, but we know that um, uh, that from uh, President Tusk's recent visit to Ankara, um, Turkey's putting in some quite strong demands for um, cooperation with the EU um, on what would essentially be pushing um, back the, the role um, uh, the, the EU problem um, in, into Turkey. Um, so I think that the, 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 the quote discussion has, has left, um, left it very hard for, um, uh, for the member states to sort of come together around these critical dossiers which um, uh, which, which anyway divided them, and, and now there's, there, there really doesn't seem to be very much goodwill around the table between the member states. Um, in terms of um, the, uh, the, the the other um, sort of key um, states in, in, in the crisis decision, um, I think it's worth saying uh, that for the UK, um, which has made it clear sort of from the beginning of these um, discussions that um, uh, it was going to play no part in, um, in a quota um, process that's been clear since May, um, but uh, it's 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 ne- it's nevertheless bad news um, for for the UK because um, clearly this disharmony which is left um, uh, isn't a very good um, basis on which um, for for Cameron to to go in and, um, and and push further on the renegotiation agenda, which includes a lot of um, uh, a, a number of um, issues which are very closely related to migration. So, um, so, so, despite um, not being involved, that's that's not good news there. I think um, Vesla mentioned the the Polish reaction, um, uh, and yeah, with with elections coming up so soon there, I think this is this is really critical because um, as our water office has been um, writing on this week um, the reaction to um, the the number of refugees which have come into um, Poland um, so far has been um, pretty hysterical um, and um, there's a, um, and has acted as a, a, a both, both a fuel and a reflection of uh, a growing Islamophobia but also a growing Germanophobia in the way that this is being pre- presented in, in, in Polish media um, so, uh, so, so, yeah, trouble on that front there too. And um, and, and Vesla, um, we've also been hearing that um, uh, that in Bulgaria um, this morning that the the media was reporting on 
um, uh, discontent around um, announcement of uh, the hotspot centre being housed in Sofia, um, and, and that this seems to be coming from Germany rather than um, from the government there. I don't know if you've got um, more to say on that, but um, clearly there seem to be tensions on all sides around um, the way in which this decision was made. Yeah, Susie, it turned out it was not correctly, entirely correctly reported. Uh, they, there has been no real debate about a hotspot in Bulgaria. Uh, and um, yes, uh, Chancellor Merkel mentioned Bulgaria, among others. But uh, the, you're right, there is a, a kind of uh, hysteria there as well in terms of who is driving the policy, whether the government is uh, or is the policy coming directly from Berlin. Um, so this tension is probably uh, going to grow uh, until the uh, quota decision is implemented uh, and uh, valid for all. So, Josef, were you surprised that the government was willing to put itself in, the German government was willing to, to put itself in the front line in this way and to force it through? Or do you think this is something which has been brewing for a long time? No, I wasn't surprised uh, because it, it has been growing. And the recognition that uh, the, the European Union is now in, in, in such a uh, state of political fragmentation that either one involves the instruments of the Lisbon Treaty uh, or one has to face a gradual uh, disintegration because of the inability to take decisions. So uh, already early on, uh, on the Russia sanctions, I think in Berlin it was very clear, would Tsipras ever think of uh, playing the Russian card uh, and not uh, staying in line on the Russia sanctions? Germany would have pushed for a decision of uh, uh, EU member states minus Greece and simply left to leave Greece on this issue out in the dust in order to, to, make, uh, uh, to demonstrate that the EU cannot afford to not decide in uh, such serious situations. So uh, I think we will see more of this, and we will also see um, uh, a, a, uh, an argument against the denunciation of using qualified majority voting, because after all, this is something that's written down in the treaties. It's not, it's not a coup. It's perfectly legal. It simply uh, is a tough um, a development to accept for countries who happen to be in a, in a minority, and Germany comfortably is so large that it will always uh, probably find uh, a sufficient number of member states to, to not be singled out like this. Um, but uh, I, I think the, the consequence uh, of, of that statement from Berlin has to be to be working more intensively, particularly with Germany's many smaller neighbors, uh, to not uh, uh, create situations... Uh, like this one, you know, Steinmeier uh, in the in the run up to this had visited the Visegrad uh, foreign ministers. Usually, Germany does not care much about the Visegrad foreign ministers, and I think things like this need a change. Uh, if if Germany wants to sustain uh, uh, a a shaping role uh, in a robust decision making environment, which will create all sorts of political frustrations. On the one hand, Germany looks like it. It's very much enjoyed being the good guy for once in a crisis. And there is this clear overlap between the economic imperatives for Germany and the moral imperatives. So how much of the German willingness to ride roughshod over the views of other member states is to do with the fact that 
there is a sense in the chancellery in other places supported by public opinion that Germany is kind of allowing Europe to be what it should be to be a better you know to kind of listen to the angels of its what is it to the angels of its better self or whatever the 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 Roosevelt answer is I mean, is there a kind of sense of messianism and and, and moral superiority going through? Because that's certainly the what the um, the Hungarians have been saying. They've been talking about a moral crusade. Well, certainly this has been a, a moral tailwind uh, for Germany. But I think also uh, if if people here in Berlin look at 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 the whole thing um, in a sober way, they should realize that it cannot be done like this uh, all the time. There is a there is a, a, a sizable uh, uh, soft power now that's flowing uh, to Germany uh, for for reasons not really understood. But uh, if you if you want to use that and if you want to to lead with this, you better define your own position more and more in terms that could be uh, a well understood European position and not like it is perceived now, uh, just a German position. And it, you know, it's it's striking that Germany comes to to a strong demand on quotas for for redistribution only at a point when there is a massive inflow to Germany, but not at earlier points. In recent years, Germany has rejected quotas because it was fearful of then having to receive the largest number. Uh, and now that you know the situation has changed, it changes its position. So I think we need more. A consistent and more uh, strategic positioning uh, of this, uh, simply to state the German interest and expect, expect everyone to follow, uh, will create so many uh, uh, transaction costs to German leadership that it will become uh, unattractive over the short term. Okay. But Joseph, may I? Yeah, of course. Uh, one one question: the, Doesn't this uh, bring about much more of an intergovernmental? Uh, mechanism of decision making in uh, foreign policy uh, than Germany in in theory would like to see? Yes, it does, unfortunately. In my view, the reading in the Chancellery is um, we won't change this uh, uh, intergovernmentalist uh, trend that we're living with and that Angela Merkel herself uh, has not rejected. She has used it. Uh, because it played into our hands. We won't change that over the short term. Um, so we'll, we'll have to live with this. Uh, and my conclusion from that would be uh, the adequate then strategic response would be uh, to create in an intergovernmental environment a sort of cohesion club of member states that uh, would actually say, we're, we're, we're trying to practice community. We know that we can't put it in the treaties over the short term. We know that it's, uh, it's going to be intergovernmental decision-making, but we want to uh, act in a way as if we were uh, approaching a community path. Now, in, on the refugee thing, the next showcase for this is, is how do you deal with immigration? Now that uh, uh, there is almost a consensus there, and it's going to be established very soon, uh, that all of the West Balkan countries are country, safe countries of origin. So no asylum there except for exceptional cases. The next step will be for European countries to establish immigration quota for people from the West Balkans. I know that Germany yeah. is already preparing this. Yeah. So there will be a German con uh, allowance of X number of people uh, who can apply in offices in West Balkan countries 
uh, to come to Germany uh, to seek employment and to live there and eventually integrate. And Germany will expect other member states to do the same thing. And, and you know, the strategic response would be not just to expect others, but to prepare this with others in the first place. So basically, Germany is embarking on a sort of fortress Europe strategy of trying to, to keep everyone outside of the, the, uh, the common border, uh, but then in exchange to have mandatory quotas for everybody to go into the different member states. Susie, maybe uh, end with you. Do, do you think that there is any hope of that actually uh, being agreed voluntarily by other people, particularly after what's happened now? Or do you think that the refuseniks will just make sure they do a better job of, uh, of organising against it in the next stage? I think it depends a little bit um, how successful the decisions which were taken this week prove over the coming weeks. Um, I think the, the fear is that um, uh, what, what the problem would be if um, this has been forced through and, the, and then even so the predictions that we've heard about um, the, the likelihood um, of, of even greater um, waves um, of, of, of refugees coming into Europe um, over the coming months as uh, Turkey's policy changes, as the situation um, in Syria changes, um, as the winter comes and the, and the pressure on the overland routes increases. Um, so I think, uh, I, I think in, in that event, um, then there, there really would be a sort of a, a breakdown of faith in, um, in, in, in what's happened this week. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, uh, we do start to see this, this problem uh, being managed uh, across Europe, then, um, then, then maybe the, the, the role that Germany has taken in this situation will be vindicated um, and there will be more acceptance of, of, of the, 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 the sort of model that, that has been put forward. Okay, well, we're definitely going to come back to this, and I think we're probably going to have, a, have to have a special podcast looking at the foreign policy aspects of the crisis in, in more detail in the next few weeks. Um, but until then, um, I think we have one more segment of this podcast left, which is the bookshelf segment. Um, so, Vesela, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I would recommend, for the sake of this program, a website, uh, it's called EU Insight, and what they do, they follow all the Balkans' uh, exchanges uh, around the uh, refugee crisis. Uh, there is a, a commercial war between Serbia and Croatia, which uh, erupted today. There have been exchanges between Slovenia and, and Croatia and Hungary and Slovakia and this whole region um, produces very colorful political statements. So whoever is interested can go and have a look there. Great. Sounds fantastic. What about you, Josef? Well, if Vesla um, responded that way, I, I will follow suit and do something that, that has also a connection to Bulgaria. I was um, made aware last week of an interesting um, uh, website um, the catchupindex.eu. A, a very interesting uh, piece of information uh, produced uh, by the Open Society Institute in Sofia, Sofia the catchupindex.eu. Um, and it, what it tries to do is to, to, to show the distance 
uh, between uh, the East Central European member states and the uh, EU at large or uh, the older member states over a range of criteria from democracy over economy, uh, society. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a whole uh, range of things. And the idea is to demonstrate how these countries are catching up um, and uh, how, how dynamic that process is. Uh, also, uh, which I think is interesting, you can build your own little index because you can combine the criteria in your own fashion. But it's a, it's a nice visual. Um, it's interesting to look at, and it actually comes out of Bulgaria. Great. <laughs> what about you, Susie? Have you got... So I wanted to, to give a homegrown uh, web recommendation, um, which is um, the, a piece which Piotr Buras wrote this week on the ECFR website, Divided Poland Faces the Foreign Policy Crossroads. Um, it's a really um, interesting insight into uh, what is going on in Polish society at the moment and uh, which pressure points um, uh, the refugee crisis is um, is particularly sensitive on. Um, and uh, I think it's well worth a read to understand the Polish position in all of this. Great. And I think you're too modest to mention your own piece, so maybe I'll mention that as my um, uh, contribution. Ten Home Truths on Europe's Refugee Crisis is a must-read commentary by Susie, together with her colleagues Dina Pardice and Nick Whitney, which tries to take a step back and look at how all of the different dimensions of this crisis, internal and external, uh, fit together. So that's all, folks. Um, we have links to all of the publications and websites that we mentioned on our own website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And from Susie Dennison, Vesla Cheneva and Josef Janning, it's thank you and goodbye for now. My name's Mark Leonard. The researcher for our podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atzinarov. <laughs>